CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Star. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry J. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Am I at the right place? I haven't been here in a while. I'm trying to make sure. Can you help me, sir? Is this the Coin World Podcast? <laughs> it certainly is the Coin World Podcast. And we missed you, Larry. How was your vacation? Yeah, it was great. It was good to have that every now and again, but I, I kind of miss all the things that were going on here. You guys, you and, uh, and what's his name, Jeff? Yeah, you and Jeff <laughs> did a great, great show last week. Really enjoyed that. And of course, with Chang being there involved with it as well. So yeah, it's good to be back in the saddle once again. It's great to be here. And uh, thanks once again to CoinWorld Plus, because we found out some good news yesterday. More and more folks are starting to get on to CoinWorld Plus. I think it's because of the podcast, actually. But uh you know, we've been seen out at a few shows and continuing. I think they're in Long Beach now. And so I think that, uh, you know, getting to know what Coin World Plus is all about is going to be really, really positive for you, for your slab coins and for your uh, peace of mind in a lot of ways for all you collectors out there. So tell them that the Coin World podcast sent you as uh, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. Chris, what, what have you been finding that's been happening here? I know you've been really busy writing for our, our print magazine and getting stories up online. What, what's what been catching your attention here lately? I certainly have. Um, it, it's interesting. We're, we'll be, I guess I'll, I'll quickly preface what we're going to be talking about in terms of a, uh, a back issue of Corner World we're going to be reviewing because there's actually a connection. But I've been working on monthly, as you mentioned, um, you know, getting getting uh, articles ready for the print, specifically a couple of uh, short features slash columns uh, for the upcoming much, uh, March monthly edition. Uh, and I also uh, covered recently, there's been an announcement, uh, I think it's up on NGC's website, and um, I was charged with covering it uh, for CoinWorld's print weekly. And I imagine the, the article will be posted online. I'm not sure exactly what the, uh, what the schedule looks like for the piece that I wrote, but uh, NGC announced that it had certified um, about 123, I believe, um, double eagles that were recovered from the wreck of the SS Central America, um, which are thought to be, at least according to a spokesperson I spoke to about um, about the announcement, um, they think that these might be some of the last coins, uh, if not the last, I believe these are the last coins recovered um, from that wreck. So that's something I was working on for the weekly. Uh, well, actually, that coverage will likely appear in the monthly, but is sort of slotted into the um, production for uh, you know for the monthly, and it'll be online at some point. So, in addition to that, I worked on, and again, this will become relevant once we start discussing uh, the the Coin World issue that we're going to be talking about, the past Coin World issue from 1976 that we'll be discussing. I also wrote a short feature on the first U.S. Uh, United States Assay Commission medal, uh, which was issued in 1860, and I also wrote a uh, list of valuable books for Morgan Dollar collectors for our Back to Basics column, uh, in addition to a uh, U.S. Type Note of the Month column as well. So I've uh, I've had a little bit to keep me busy, Larry. Uh, and, and as you know, Jeff and I uh, 
you know, Jeff and I talked uh, last week, but technical difficulties prevented me from joining his interview with Chang Bullock, which I hope everybody out there enjoyed. So oh. I've uh, I've been pretty busy. What about you, Larry? What are you working on? Well, I only, I mean, I, I'm kind of tired just listening to you right there, but just, just let me assure you right now that later today, one of my assignments is to make sure that your NGC story gets up online. So you can rest assured that uh, I'll be taking care of that for you. But ah, I appreciate now, it, fortunately, Yeah, fortunately, I'm going to have my very first cover story in the uh, March issue of Coin World Monthly. So I have that. And then we have a, a recap of the recent uh, visit by Steve Album right here on the podcast. And that's going to be included. So I guess I got what's at the front. I got what's at the back, too. So it's pretty cool right there. But, uh, you know, here it is. You've been with us a little over a month now. And it seems like we're working you like the, you know, well, like a dog, I guess, because <laughs> you talk about three assignments and I only had two. But granted, mine was a little bigger, but it's just the idea. How are you enjoying getting back into the flow of writing again? I know we've missed your writing. So how are you enjoying that? Oh, that's that's kind of you to say. I, I, I'm enjoying it. When I started writing for Coin World in the spring of 20, well, late in, late 2017 and into the spring of 2018 is when I began picking up freelance assignments. And I, ne- I initially, I never thought of writing as a creative act. When I thought of when I thought of creativity, I sort of intuitively thought of music or visual arts or you know playwrights. You know, I, those were the sorts of the types of art and the types of artists that I kind of associated with creativity. But over the last couple of years, especially working uh, through the pandemic, working remotely, I don't know that remote work had any impact on how I think about creativity and how I think about the role of creativity and what I do and what you do, what, what we do really. But I got very interested in reading books about writing, specifically feature writing, actually. There are a couple of great, great books uh, from prominent feature writers for publications like The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, fairly high caliber publications and a number, a couple of feature writers have written really interesting books on the sort of craft of feature writing. So looking at it as a craft and thinking about, you know, cause a craft requires craftsman or craftspersonship, thinking about it in that context sort of highlighted for me the role that creativity plays in all of that. And so in trying to become a better feature writer and a better writer in general, and really honestly a better communicator, this is, you know, we don't write these podcasts out really. I mean, you know, I, I, we ta- I take notes on the back issues that we read so that I have a basic sense of what I want to talk about, but this is not scripted, which of course is the advantage to podcasting as a medium is that it isn't scripted. And so it's a little bit more accessible. There's more of a human voice to it, though, of course, you know, talented writers and writers in general, but particularly really talented ones often have a voice that comes through in their writing, but hearing it in an audio medium is obviously it's a voice of a different kind. And so in thinking about the kind of technical and creative aspects of feature writing, I just find that my approach has changed a little bit. Um, And that I also just find that I approach these things a little bit more intentionally than I once did. There's a little bit more of a structure to my thinking or to my approach. And so I guess I'm lucky to have that sort of different framework. And so having to apply that framework in a, you know, a scheduled environment of having to meet deadlines and having to figure everything out, you know, it's, it's a, transition my freelancing work the deadlines were in some cases a little bit looser so in some cases i had a little bit more flexibility or time to play with but having that um 
stricter deadline structure has kind of helped me to compress my process, which has also forced me to make it more efficient in some ways. So I'm grateful for the challenge, and which is not to say that I wasn't being challenged before. All of my previous, all of my uh, you know, freelance work and, and other employers uh, since I left at the beginning of 2021, I left the podcast and everything at the beginning of 21, you know, which is not to say that that wasn't challenging. It certainly, it certainly was, but you know, this is a different context and a different environment. And so, you know, adapting to that has, you know, changed my process a little bit, but I think it's changing it for the better. And I'm hoping to become sort of a more efficient writer through all of that. So I am grateful for the opportunity to not only readjust to sort of the corn world environment, but, you know, to, to have a new environment in which to apply my, my process. So, and to, to keep refining it. So anyway, I'm sorry. I don't know if that you expected, <laughs> I don't know that you expected a monologue out of me there, but uh, you that was a really good question. It kind of got me thinking. Well, that's great. Yeah, we do appreciate all that you do. I mean, it's just the contributions you make in the podcast and you're continuing to make the uh, contributions on the writing side of things. And it's just a reminder to all of us that Coin World is a multifaceted endeavor here. We've got our weekly publication. We've got our monthly publication. We've also got the website. We've also got the idea that we do the podcast. And there, there's just growth on the horizon for everything that we do here in Coin World. And it's all due to the fact that our support that we get from our readers, from our listeners, from everybody involved here, and the contributions they make that help keep us be on that creative side of things and allow us to continue to grow and develop and, and learn more. And that's what we hope to do with all of our aspects, but especially this podcast. So I'd like to take the time right now to go back in time a little bit, because for the first time I mentioned my first cover story, this is the first time I get to do this week in numismatic history. So I want to thank Jeff for giving me that opportunity to uh, get involved with that. So I'd like to take us back in time a little bit right now and think about some of the things that happened during the week of February 16th through the 22nd. First thing that comes to mind for me as I looked over all of these, and that is in 1909 on February 17th, Victor David Brenner had uh, proposed his wheat side on the reverse that was used on the uh, Lincoln Cent, all the wheat design, and he proposed it to the Bureau of Men officials. We know that it was approved and used for many years up until I think 58. Correct me if I'm wrong yep. on that one. Uh, yep. Yeah, it was 1958. Okay, so I mean, that's what I'm going to bounce things off of you. So don't hesitate to factually put me back on the road because sometimes I go off an exit that I don't need to be on. But uh, that was just one of the cool things that I found on the list. But an even cooler thing is because we talk about Lincoln here, and that was one of the presidents of the United States that got a lot of recognition. But here's another one. You know, February 22nd, when I was growing up, that was a school holiday for us because we didn't combine all the presidents into one day. We got the day off because it's George Washington's birthday. So George Washington was born on February 22nd of 1732. And, you know, it's kind of I wonder 10 years from now, are we going to do something special like we did for 1932 when we uh, developed the new quarter dollar? And speaking of quarters, I got my first Maya Angelou quarter in change the other day. Hey, and that's I, awesome. Yeah, I really like, I mean, I saw the reverse first and I saw it, but then when I turned it over, I, I'm not a fan of the new portrait of George Washington, but no? it's not my decision. No, I, I'm not a fan of it. I mean, maybe it's because it represents a change that I'm just so used to seeing 
in the older styles and and some of the the things that we you know we just grow accustomed to that maybe I'm just one of those kids get off my lawn kind of people when it comes <laughs> to uh, looking at the at the quarter now but it'll grow on me I'm sure of it I mean the first one in my hands right there it came back and changed with a 1980 which was the old traditional style before the state quarters and it also came back with a California quarter because I try to make my purchases so that I get as many quarters as I can to help my still unfulfilled collection of state and national park quarters but now i mean i've got it right here i I haven't finished mine either um i did the my my original folder of uh state quarters the uh 1999 to 2008 uh folder i completed that but it was only each issue it wasn't uh, date and mint mark where my America the Beautiful folder is Dayton Mint Mark, but I have not found all of them. And having not transacted f- frequently with cash up until very recently, I found my first Washington Crossing the Delaware quarter months ago. It late, I think it was in the f- it was in the fall of uh, this past year, fall of twenty one. I found my first. It's funny, jump right out of me because not only did it have a lot of its original mint luster. I saw the portrait and it was back to its, you know, its original size because they reduced it for the um, State Quarters and America the Beautiful Quarter series. I liked the increased portrait and the Washington Crossing the Delaware design. It it looks nice. It's a decent looking design. Um, I have not seen a Maya Angelou quarter yet or any of the other American women quarters. I think I know the Maya Angelou ones have been released. I'm not sure if any of the the subsequent. Uh, the subsequent four for this year have been released yet. I'd have to go to the Mint's website and and check exactly which day they'll be putting those out. Ha- having not seen it in you know in person or in coin, I can't really say how Laura Garden Fraser's um, design strikes up and how it appears on the coin itself. I'm looking forward to getting one just to be able to check. I also every time I decided to start doing this with the uh, the 2021 uh, Washington Crossing the Delaware quarter. Um, the first example that I find, I'm going to pick out a circulation and put into a two by two and write the date that I found it just for fun, um, for posterity. I like to think that, you know, if if my collection ever gets buried, someone will unbury it and be like, he found this coin on, you know, this date and this year. I, I, I don't flatter myself that my collection will ever be <laughs> important enough for anyone to care that I recorded that. But it was just kind of a fun little detail uh, to something that I, I decided to do. And once I find the Maya Angelou quarter, I, I hope to do the same. And also, I can't help but think that the obverse design is thematically fitting in the sense that, you know, this is a, a series of circulating commemorative quarters honoring the achievements of American women. And so having an obverse design that was created by a woman, it does seem there's sort of a, you know, a thematic connection there. And and the design has been used before, obviously, on the uh, $5 um, gold commemorative coin issued in 1999. So there's that connection as well. But yep. yeah, so I, I look forward to it. I, I, I started working uh, weekends. I picked up a couple shifts at a uh, local wine shop. So I'll be transacting in cash more frequently. So I'm going to have to remember to bring coins. So if any, I see anything good in the, <laughs> if I see anything good in the till, I can, uh, I can change it out. But, but Larry, that's really cool. You found, uh, found the first Maya Angelou quarter that you've seen. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the other ones come out too. They're, some of those designs are really nice. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how they, uh, how they appear. Yeah, and it, it's interesting too because I mean, on the smaller size coins, obviously the quarter one of the bigger coins compared to the five cent, the one cent, the ten cent. But I mean, it's just like there's so much intricate design that's got to be compressed into a somewhat smaller palette. So it's just the idea that it, I mean, and here again, it's just going to grow on me. But I, I, your point is well taken, and I'm also going to steal the idea of the two by two because I'm holding <laughs> them right here, right now. But that is a great idea. 
especially because you know when when some of the older coins that we discover are like for example i had that 1980 and it's just like that's a 42 year old coin but i didn't discover that in 1980 i discovered this one in its year of minting the other one's not so much so it's just kind of a neat way of putting that but uh yeah i guess uh you know everybody and that's the idea behind this is that my reason for not necessarily liking this is not necessarily a good reason, but it's me. It's why I like certain things and collectors like certain types. And it's just the way that, you know, we go through this hobby. So it's just great. I mean, I was always on the quest for it. I was on the quest for the Washington Cross in the Delaware when it first came out. I was on the quest for this one. I've got this one. I think Sally rides next. I'll be looking mm -hmm. for Sally when it comes out here. It's especially mindful of us down here in Florida. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, they're talking about putting the space shuttle on the state flag, which I think is a good idea, but I'm sure that's going to That is a good idea. Kind of political volleyballing going back and forth here, but enough of that madness here because uh, you know, we're going to be talking with uh Jeff's going to be talking to Mitch Ernst a little bit later on here in a, a year of significance for uh that conversation without giving away that conversation was 1976. So I think that's a good time. That encompasses our history of coin world. It's a good time to go back to, we go back to the February, I believe, February 18th of 1976. And Chris, you alluded to it earlier. What's one of the special stories on that issue? I did. So the cover story on the February 18th, 1976 edition of Coin World, above the fold, um, the top story was uh, President Gerald Ford announcing the 1970, the members of the 1976 Assay Commission, which ties into that short feature that I was working on about the 1860 Assay Commission Medal, which I obviously covered in a short feature that will be appearing in Coin World's monthly edition, March monthly edition. Shameless plug, you should subscribe to the print publication if you haven't already. But shameless plugs aside, the story was interesting on a couple levels. The first was the obvious connection to work that I had recently been doing. But it's also worth pointing out that 1976 was not quite an inflection point and not quite the beginning of the end, but was immediately before the beginning of the end of the assay commission president carter jimmy carter you know who won the presidential election in 1976 took office in january of 77 uh decided to try to do away with the assay commission and in fact 1977 was the last year that assay commission medals were issued and actually the first year that they were sold to the general public so a year after this some major changes were coming to the assay commission and then it met for the last time in 1980 interestingly um our editor, editor of uh, Coin World, Bill Gibbs, actually wrote in a recent editorial that he thought that they should bring that back, that they should bring the Assay Commission uh, back and, uh, and and start doing it again now in the 21st century, which I think I agree with. I think that's really, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting ceremony that dates to the 1790s. And, you know, I think that would be interesting. You know, and it would, it would also introduce a sort of sense of accountability uh, to the mint, which is not to say that the mint is, is you know, wildly irresponsible in terms of the quality of production of our coinage, but th that's not to imply that at all. But I do think that having that body there to review the coinage and see that it sort of meets spec, so to speak, uh, would be interesting. So, but another element of the 1976 Assay Commission story that I found interesting was a name actually jumped out at me, a name on the list of the people um, appointed uh, jumped out and it was Harvey Stack. Uh, so something interesting, interesting about the Assay Commission that I learned as I researched it was that uh, prominent numismatists were often named to the Assay Commission over its nearly two centuries of existence. Uh, it met for the first time in 1797, so yeah, about a little more than a decade shy of, of two centuries, but you know, it's, it's lengthy existence. Prominent numismatists were, were often appointed. 
And it was considered sort of an honor and uh, to serve on the assay commission. And it was sort of a feather in the cap of whoever was selected. And so Harvey Stack, not only is that a name that I recognize, of course, Harvey Stack being a, a prominent, a very prominent numismatist who, who passed away recently, sadly. But so his, his name jumped out at me for, for that reason. And I found that really interesting. So seeing a familiar name uh, kind of jumped out at me as well and underscored the role, uh, the sort of honor of serving on the commission, which I thought was, uh, was really interesting. And on top of that, a big chunk of the story was devoted to exploring the history of the United States Assay Commission, its establishment, and it even goes back into ancient history. Uh, the article detailed um, how certain ancient societies tested their own coinage. So it was an interesting story that covered a lot of ground, and I enjoyed reading it. And plus, it being you know 1976, shortly before you know the uh, penultimate year that uh, U.S. Assay Commission medals were issued, you know. Obviously, looking back at it from 2022, for, from the vantage of 2022, we know what eventually happened to the Assay Commission. So it was interesting to see this little piece of news with a familiar name that also tied into something that I had been working on. The other story that jumped out at me was a news story um, talking about the potential introduction of a new denomination and a smaller dollar. Now, again, remember, this is 1976. So the smaller dollar that was talked about in the article, the proposal for the smaller dollar you know, that sort of presages what uh, we now know as the Susan B. Anthony dollar, which was introduced, as we know, in 1979. This article is interesting. And not only did it talk about proposals for a smaller dollar coin, but it also talked about expanded, you know, the hope, the mint's hope for expanded production. It reported that in calendar year 1975, the mint had struck more than 14 billion coins and that uh, based on a computerized projection from the uh, Federal Reserve, apparently the um, the, this computerized coin demand forecasting system was actually fairly new at the time, according to the article. They were projecting 15.8 billion coins to be produced in 1976. So they were projecting that. And also they alluded, they, they didn't get into it in a tremendous amount of detail, but apparently there had been proposals for a new, a new denomination or maybe the reintroduction of an old denomination uh, between one cent and five cents, which that caught my eye because it reminded me of our conversation in a pre in a recent previous podcast episode where we talked about how the soft drink industry pushed for the introduction of odd denomination coinage in the 1950s to facilitate the purchase of their beverages. So I saw a lot in this story that was interesting as well. And again, from the vantage of 2022, looking at that and seeing that headline, you realize, oh, there is going to be a smaller dollar coin introduced a few years from 1976. And there would be subsequent efforts to have small dollar coins introduced that are continuing uh, to this day. Um, you know, there are small size dollars that are produced, um, you know, that they tried to reintroduce with this, uh, the Sacagawea dollar introduced in 2000, for example. So anyway, it was just an interesting little, you know, historical, you know, historical piece. And it, again, like the first article, it covered a lot of ground and also connected to, you know, to work that we've done recently, specifically the, um, the previous podcast. So that's, uh, that's what I was taking a look at on the, on the front page. How'd the letters look, Larry? Did anything, uh, anything jump out at you? Yeah, some pretty decent letters, but the one that jumped out at me was called Classic Designs Urged and said, Russ Hurd recommends r uh, removing the portraits of Lincoln, Washington, and Jefferson from our coins. I am wholeheartedly in agreement and favor returning to classic designs on all of our coins. Lincoln has been on the set since 1909, 67 years at the time of the writing. Washington since 1932, 44 years. Jefferson since 1938, 38 years. And Roosevelt since 1946, 30 years. What portion of our population has known any design on the scent other than Lincoln? 
My admiration for the 16th president is second to none, but this does not mean his image on the scent must go on forever. There is nothing so sacred about anyone or anything that is immune to change with time. The coinage laws provide that the same when the same design has been on a coin for 25 years, the Secretary of Treasury may change the design without authorization from Congress. Obviously, our politicians, both elected and appointed, do not have the courage to make a change once a popular figure is portrayed on a coin. It's for this reason I recommend returning to classical designs on a regular coinage. There's nothing wrong with substituting the regular coinage with an occasional commemorative piece, like the Lincoln, Washington, and Jefferson coins were intended to be, or a memorial similar to Roosevelt, Kennedy, and Eisenhower pieces. These changes, however, should be designated in advance for specific periods such as one, two, five, or a maximum of 10 years. We went halfway on the bicentennial commemoratives this year. Canada and other countries have been doing this for years without any major problems. Why can't we get out of the coinage rut? And that was from C. Edwin Aldrich of Alpine, New Jersey. Some points to be well taken. Of course, we know looking back in history, some things were done along that line. But the the line that stood out to me, um, you know, on this one was about changing designs and how much it, by changing the uh, Washington portrait on the quarter here, I, oh no, you can't do that. It's, uh, you know, you're, and so it just kind of hit that, you know, yeah, we should change things up every now and again. And this change on the 2022 quarter dollar, is not that bad of a thing after all. So you know, there you have it. <laughs> hearing you, uh, hearing you read that letter, the first thought in my head was, "This is a letter writer after my own heart." Uh, I, I, I agree with many of the points that he made, and the line that stood out to me was about how no one is so sacred as to have mm-hmm. to appear. I, I thought that that line really captured, um, you know, really captured an important point and an important dynamic in terms of our sort of public commemorations of notable historical figures and. Yeah without delving too far down this particular rabbit hole, that's a fairly timely issue as we as you know, we as a country and sort of and people in individual states grapple with the presence of uh, monuments commemorating people from the past, especially you know the monuments commemorating people from the Confederacy being a particularly kind of contentious issue at the moment. But nonetheless, you know so this plays into a larger conversation about how we depict you know significant figures from our past and how we, Frankly, how we understand and depict our past. So that's yeah. that's that was a great letter, Larry. I think uh, you made a good choice there. Yeah, I think it was a very good letter. And even though you know here we are many many years after the fact here, but you know one of the things about my little hiatus last week is I missed out on the fun of uh, what we do every week with our trivia question. But I did listen to the podcast, so I do know that we had a great question, and I hope our listeners listened to it last week and caught up on this question. Because uh, I think Jeff even said, or maybe you said, that it was kind of an elemental question, and and I think I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in this one. So, can you, since you were part of that historical activity, can you relate our question, our trivia question from last week, so that our listeners can see if they were right as well? I can. In hindsight, I wish I'd written it down so I could ask it verbatim. But ah. I, I do remember what the question is. Um, and also, it's interesting. I, I I so seldom get to ask the question. Jeff is always quizzing either you or me, so I'm taking over. Uh, I'm taking over Jeff's role. And not that it matters. I think I got it right too in my in the answer that I had prepared. But we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see how you do. Uh, the question was: How many branches? Did the United States Mint have in 1930, and what and where were they? That's how I remember the question as well. So, and I think that I'm pretty confident. Philadelphia, obviously. 
Mm-hmm. Um, San Francisco was established, um, yeah, back in the 1850s. Yeah, so it was San Francisco, Denver, I think, oh, you know, 06, something around mm-hmm. there. So, so I'm pretty confident that it's Philadelphia, Denver, San Francisco. I'm pretty confident that it's three. You are three quarters of the way there. Um, what? No, I know, no. darn. Um, <laughs> no, wait a minute, wait a minute. New Orleans closed in 09, so that can't be it. And so, uh, sh- sh- uh, Charlotte and Dahlonega both closed in 1861. Right. right, so it's three, right? No, Manila. We were operating, uh, the United States Mint was operating a facility in the Philippines in Manila ah, in 1930. So that's the, uh, okay. that's the one you missed. So, oh yeah, okay, yeah. I was here. I was just focusing in the continental United States. wasn't mm. looking at it. You're absolutely right. That's true. Okay. Yeah. yeah so well, there you have it. But hey, All you know right. what? That's absolutely an understandable, uh, absolutely an understandable oversight. Um, the history of the Manila Mint is really interesting. I would encourage we should do. Uh, we should we should discuss that at some point. We should we should talk about the Manila Mint and kind of how the United States operated it and kind of how we struck coinage for use in the Philippines. That that'd be an interesting podcast topic. We'll have to. Uh, We'll have to delve into that at some point if we haven't already. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think it's time to pivot to Jeff's uh, to Jeff's interview with Mitch Ernst, which I sadly wasn't able to participate in owing to some technical difficulties. But uh, hopefully, we'll get those ironed out. So uh, you know, you and I, or you, Jeff and I, or some combination of the three of us can be uh, doing interviews uh, from here on. So I hope all of you enjoyed Jeff's interview with Mitch Ernst. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to speak to Mitch Ernst, the president of the Central States Numismatic Society. But that's not the only reason we want to talk to Mitch, because he has a fantastic and and fascinating area of collecting. You'll get to hear about it in just a moment. Thank you so much for being here, Mitch. Jeff, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Had to talk to you when I really paid attention to one of your social media posts. So the reason I wanted to get Mitch on the show is because he is a consummate collector of art medals and coins and other objects featuring the sewer, which is a famous design in French numismatic and art history. It's distinctly related, I think, to an American coin. It's a familiar image. Um, Have I fully encapsulated what the sewer means and is? Well, in my case, growing up in Nebraska on on top of our state capitol is a sculpture by Lee Lowry of the sower. And so I grew up with that image overlooking me, so to speak. Uh, As I got involved in numismatics, of course, Oscar Rohde's La Semuse or Marianne, it's about the the most famous sower one could imagine. So... And this is a, a generally the, the French, the classic French design is a, a female in the field scattering seeds to the wind and, and sowing the seeds, planting a, a brighter future. Is, is that a, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, I did a, a talk for Wynn on Oscar Rohde and his Marianne, the French's image of liberty. And that's, pretty much describes it. And what what I found fascinating was uh, in researching for that talk, that design was not immediately welcomed by many people in France. Um, Some said, oh, what is she sowing? The seeds of discord, of future, you know, problems or something. And and I found that fascinating because um, to me, when I see the sower, 
in any of its depictions, I see someone sowing hope for the future. Yeah, I mean, you in an agricultural context, you you plant the seeds earlier in the year. You're hoping for, um, you know, a, a long, a good, good long growing season and a, and a good harvest, a bountiful harvest. Um, that's the imagery, although I know that sometimes it'll take a male form. But how did you define the parameters of your collection then? Because the coin itself, or the design on the coins, I believe came out in the 1880s or 1890s. Right. Um, and this was used on several denominations of 50 centime, the, the one franc, and maybe two franc, five franc. I don't remember exactly. So you started from there. How did you expand it? Well, not actually. What happened was I was president of the Nebraska Numismatic Association, and I would travel around the state and I to get to know uh, the different clubs and different dealers in the state. And I was down uh, in Lincoln, Lincoln, Nebraska, visiting Jim McKee's store, the coinery. And my friend John Veach was across the counter, and he handed me a 1976 Nebraska Bicentennial Medal, and on the obverse of that medal was the state capital sower, uh, Lee Lowry Sower. And as soon as that dumb thing hit my palm, the thought came to my mind, I wonder how many coins have an image of a sower on them. And it was from that strange occurrence, and I'd say probably, oh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, having that medal in my hand that it started this whole project for me. Were you familiar with the French coins at that point? No, not really. But of course, my first search uh, looking for coins with sewers, guess what I found first was that. Yeah. Was that. Yeah. So. yeah. so this was a 15, 20 year project for you to collect items with the sewer. Uh, how broad of a collection have you amassed over this time? Well, there's around, I would say, I have 190 medals, uh, different medals, and probably 30 or so coins in it. Um, and of course, I've expanded into not geld. I have not geld notes. I have a pretty good collection of not geld, probably 81, 80, 81 or so. And um, this crazy niche of mine, I've I've gone into stamps. I have like. 50-some stamps. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you, you know, Notgeld's a, a sort of curious artifact of paper money. Have you gotten into f official issue French paper money, like, you know, federal issue? I do have 23 various world currency notes, and I have two obsolete banknotes from the States. But as far as the French one goes, yeah, they have just a couple – that I have in my collection of the Notgeld, and they were, you know, basically it looks like just Marianne again from uh, mm. Rody's design, La Samuse. But boy, the Notgeld, the German Notgeld in particular, is really fascinating to me. The the colors, the designs, it, it it's really fun. That's interesting that the Germans would, I don't want to say co-opt a, a French design, but, you know, that that this French design would um, sort of have a, have a, such a place or such a home on the, the German Notgeld. Well, it isn't 
the French design, these are the German notes or the German notgeld, I would say exclusively males. Um, okay. They're all men, all with their sleeves rolled up, you know, all ready to get to work. So Okay. And I guess in that sense, there's, um, I think there's some like, you know, Yugoslavian coins and things with a similar muscular guy, you know, in action. So that's, that's my mistake to extrapolate that direction. It's been fascinating. You know, and what's funny, it all started by someone putting, by my friend putting that bicentennial medal in my hand, but I immediately went to look for coins and my collection really took on a much broader dimension when I discovered Art Nouveau medals. Mm. I mean, oh my, it was um, <laughs> like a whole new world opening up for me. So sometimes there's the um, the joke about, uh, you know, when you, you buy a, a car, all of a sudden, every car you see on the road, you know, you, you see that car, that color and that make. <laughs> w- was that the case with uh, when, when she started collecting the sewer, you saw them everywhere? <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, that's one thing I've really enjoyed about this collection, that it's been more of an Easter egg hunt for me over the last 20 years. I've had to search. I've had to look. There have been some dry spells, which is fine because uh, when you finally see something again, it's quite exciting. You know, as I said, I guess maybe it was through some of those dry spells that led me to want to branch out into the stamps and the currency and the not guilt. Because, um, you know, when you collect kind of a limited, uh, such a narrow scope, maybe that's a better way to put it, you wonder, wow, am I ever going to see that one again? And I learned quickly in this collection, if I saw something I wanted, I better go in heavy and fast on it because I may not ever see it again. Yeah, that's a good lesson, especially uh, for collectors who are in an area where you say it's a with a limited scope and as rare as a nineteen thirteen nickel is. You know they're going to come up at auction every few years. <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> yeah. so, some of this stuff you may not ever see again, like you said. Yeah, and there's still a coin that I passed on back twenty some years ago. And I kick myself this day because 20 years ago, I thought it was challenging to look at that coin for $600. It's a um, 1933 Czechoslovakian piece uh. Uh, commemorating Antonin Savela. It's a gold ducat. And I thought it was heavy at $600. Just two weeks ago, there was a auction on Conquer and... They went for over nine thousand. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, as you say, the the market for Czech gold. I you know, there's some of the big powerhouse auction firms uh, over the last few years have really offered quite an array of Czech gold. <laughs> so that price movement is not merely indicative of the spot change. That's that's yeah. real real demand for that arena. And and so now, I mean, you're talking you know twenty times higher price. Right. And that's when I kick myself saying, boy, if I thought 600 was expensive, <laughs> you know, I yeah. should have taken, I should have taken the plunge when I had the chance. Yeah. So obviously, so that's, that's a miss, but um, what are some of the, the 
more fun, more exciting gets. You know, you you probably really become familiar with what is rare and what's common. Tell me about a time you found a really rare piece, maybe in an unexpected place or with a neat story behind it. I received a phone call. Oh, man. Let's see. This was probably five years ago or so from my friend Rick Snow. He said, Mitch, I think I found the holy grail of sowers. And of course, he said, can you guess what it is? Well, you know, it, that's one of those questions where, you know, you could guess all day and probably not guess the exact one that he had. Well, come to find out, a George Washington season medal walked into his store one day. Huh. And, you know, 1798, when they struck the medals, medals they didn't, uh, they were called season medals, but they were more... They were struck to depict agricultural, domestic life things, you know, that they could hand out to the native tribes to try to, quote unquote, civilize them or to adapt them to more of a, a European or American type of lifestyle. And one of those images is of a sower. And believe it or not, Rick called and said, uh, I have a sower medal for you. And... Um, and that's what it was. He had John Kralovic authenticate it. Yeah, it's it's the real deal. And a family had had it a long time and walked into a store and wanted to sell it. And thankfully, Rick thought of me first. So I have a 1798 George Washington uh, season medal in my collection, which I'm very proud of. Wow. I mean, that's really cool. And I know that when you collect a certain area, dealers often, not always, but often will keep an eye out for those things for you because they know that that's an interest. Uh, how important has been curating that um, sort of army of, of eyes <laughs> for you to, to build the collection? With coins, uh, with only 33 that I know of and I have collected, and I have them all, many times someone will call, hey, I found a sower for you and I'll have to say, well, you know, um, sorry. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, uh, I have that one. And this isn't something for me, this is more of a type collection for me. I'm not really sure. I, I'm trying to find the best example that I can, and I will upgrade. But if I find something that I think, and I'm pretty sure all of the examples are in the same state or whatever, I'll pass a lot of times on when someone uh, brings up a new suggestion oh. to me. But I always am careful to say, please, don't take this as a, don't call me again um, <laughs> yeah. response. Yeah. If, you find, if you find something, let me know. Yeah, you want that door to still be open, but you know, on, on this <laughs> yeah. particular instance, you're going to pass. So, so you, right. when you say they're all found in the same state of preservation, is that what you mean? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And not this isn't like a registry set for me where a it's a big jump to go from a 68 to a 69, say in an Ike series. You know, this isn't that for me. So, you know, it would have to be a dramatic I appeal difference for me to have interest in, you know, upgrading something that I already own. 
Yeah. Okay. You know, you mentioned the Washington Seasons Medal, which is fun, but that can't be your only U.S. coin with a sower, right? U.S. coins, the only, they're not really dramatic. You know, I mean, they're more implied images of a sower than actual images. Just recently, the platinum one ounce U.S., um, there's an image of Liberty holding a baby in her hand and the baby's dropping some seeds on the ground. So I I take that as a sower. On the Native American coins, uh, one of the first images was of the three sisters. And yeah. there you have a Native American woman planting seeds. So I take that as a sower. But on other coins, they're mostly world-issued. And believe it or not, mostly men. For some reason, the French, maybe, and it's because of how familiar and how famous the French Im- uh, image is, the other countries tried to stay away from duplicating it. Yeah. I guess I was thinking more of the walking liberty. I, I mean, you, right. can't, you can't look at that and understand the timeline of the French sower and not think there had to have been some sort of inspiration or connection. Yeah, I have a PowerPoint about my collection, and that is one of the slides when I, you know, was Weinman's design taken from Rhodey or was Rhodey's taken from, you know, so. Where do you fall on that? Well, Rhodey's design began long before it was incorporated in, in 1898. Um, he actually submitted that coin in a metal contest, but because his mentor was also entered in that contest, he withdrew the design 20 years earlier. So it wasn't until the French government wanted a new symbol of liberty that he resubmitted La Semuse. And he changed the design some. His metal design, the woman was much heftier, kind of more of a stocky, strong-looking woman. And La Semuse on the coin is, is thinner, more elegant looking. So I, I kind of fall that um, Rhodey had had the edge on that design coming out, creating that design or that image first. Okay. You've obviously, I mean, this is a labor of love and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's fair to say you probably have the best collection, most extensive collection of sewer themed numismatics. How would somebody get started in that? I, I don't think there's a book. Uh, is that maybe something you would uh, be interested in preparing or is there, what are some of the resources that exist and, and how can people learn about all the different options? See, Jeff, that's the interesting thing for me. I have exhibited a, par- a partial of my uh, collection, like at the ANA and at Central States, and got, you know, was judged very poorly on the fact that I had no documentation, that, that I had no actual records to call back on, on my exhibit to say, you know, how many of these exist? I have yet to find real documentation or records or anything where you can find some of these agricultural medals that were issued in the late 18th century, early 19th century, where there were actual records kept on how many were struck or how many were made for this certain event. 
it's been really difficult. And so I had to base a lot of my documentation on how many have I come across in determining rarity. I had to base rarity on how many have I come across in this 20-year period. If I find one, say, online, looking on online auctions, even on eBay, if I see one that I can find one readily, then that's not a rare uh, metal to me. But if if there is a dry spell between uh, discoveries of a year or more, that's a rare metal for me. That's kind of how I'm breaking it down. Yeah, I would be interested in working on some type of reference in this area. Uh, but the selfish side of me says, well, do I really want competition? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, may, maybe um, somebody listens to this and, and likes the uh, the prospect of it and, and wants to go pursue it. But, you know, certainly the long-term value to the hobby, uh, I mean, people can't collect something they don't know you know, they don't know exist. And so if, you know, once that information's out there, once that market has a, a basis or understanding, we see those markets react positively, both in a creating demand and also uh, seeing increase in prices. I mean, you know, right. David Alexander's book on Society of Metalist Metals, before that, there was a lot of information and it was scattered and it was some of it, I wouldn't say it was questionable, but, you know, there was, it was diffuse enough and it was, it's so outside the mainstream, if you will, that some people might not be willing to engage in it. But once you go, look, here's a book, it tells you everything you need to know about it. <laughs> then people, oh, okay, you know, great. This is now I feel right. con- confident in, in pursuing this. I joke, you know, about the gambling tokens of the Tibetan monks, not that those exist. I'm just, you know, there's, you know, there's something out there for everybody. Right. And, you know, when there's a, a floor you know, information basis that acts as a floor to support, you know, the market, then things can rise. So perhaps that'll be your next big project while, you know, you work in with all the other things you're doing. And I am quite flattered at the response. I guess one reason I enjoy this so much is because deep down, I'm not really like a VAM guy or a die marriage person or where I can, I have a friend who can, he can look at a flying eagle and he can start, he can give me the snow number on it. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not that kind of guy. God bless him, but it's not me. And so finding this niche where I see the, you know, this one image that really compels me uh, has just been wonderful. It, it recreated collecting for me in a sense. And the response I've received has just been wonderful from people, you know, coming up and even in this case, being invited on to do this, this, this is so flattering to me because, you know, oftentimes I sit down in my office and I'm, you know, cataloging something and looking at it and I know how much I appreciate it, but it's so flattering and and nice to know other people think it's nice too. Yeah. I mean, you know, collecting is, it's a unique individual pursuit, but there are ways that it's a pursuit that allows us to remain connected. 
whether you're, you know, building, rehabbing old cars, if you will, or, you know, overhauling, you know, whatever community you're in uh, as a collector, as a hobbyist, there's room for you and it's a way to remain connected and, and all that. So um, that's sort of a, a natural segue into a larger role you have in the hobby, uh, which we, you know, we mentioned at the top, you've been president of the Central States Numismatic Society. How long now? Longer than I thought I would ever <laughs> be president. You know, COVID has um, done some interesting things. I've been president uh, four years, and I might add, and that is a t- that is a two year term. So I don't know how that worked out. But I, I've been I've been president for four years. Well, you you haven't been impeached, and you haven't uh, you hadn't had a challenger. <laughs> what have you learned in that time? Um, what are the challenges of logistically and otherwise? To I mean, central states is I think thirteen states, massive uh, geographical area. You had to cancel a couple shows. The show I think is scheduled for April, so you you know things are looking up in that regard. What have you learned, and and how challenging has this tenure been? Jeff, I joke with people that I've aged 10 years in the last two years. Um, not I think, I just, think we all have. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. But the cancellation of our two events, you know, unlike some organizations that have big endowments or things that they can rely on, we don't have that. I mean, like a lot of shows or a lot of organizations, our show is our big fundraiser every year. That's what makes us run. And um, thank God we had cancellation insurance for those two events. But as anyone knows, who's ever filed a claim with an insurance company, just because you file a claim doesn't necessarily mean that they will they will pay on that claim. And, and we've had quite a battle over our two claims for our two canceled conventions. I am happy to report that, yes, both of them have finally been settled. Is it what we expected? No. Can we live to fight another day? Yes. And so that's that's the win for us. We can go on, and, and um, we sure learned a lot, that's for sure. Yeah. So at least you're, you're still standing uh, or, or got back up if you got knocked down. What do you think the uh, central state's best – path forward is? Uh, I mean, is, are you guys have any initiatives to boost membership, uh, reach a broader audience? What things are in store now that you've weathered that storm and you have uh, another show in the imminent future? Jeff, when I became president, I, I was really concerned about the future of Central State. And don't ask me, my wife asked me constantly, why do you care so much about that? And, you know, Maybe it's kind of like why I collect Zoars. I don't know why I'm attracted to it. I don't know why I have this attraction to central states, but I do. And four years ago, if someone had told me that at the end of my term, first uh, two years, that we would have a pandemic, that we would have to shut down our convention for two years, that we would lose 600 members just to people not renewing their membership and yet coming out of that being two months away from our uh, convention this year that I would be so full of hope and optimism and I mean just excitement I would tell them that they're crazy but Jeff I'm telling you we have made some great 
hires and some great moves. I don't know if the listeners know, but our longtime editor, Jerry Tebbin, uh, informed me a few months ago that he felt it was time to retire. And it took me aback because in everything else that was going on, oh no, great. Now, 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 uh, now I have to find someone to replace Jerry. And that was going to be a tough, tough shoes to fill. Jerry has become not only a dear friend, but boy, I call on him often just for his perspective. He is so measured and kind in the way he approaches things that I really have valued his perspective on things. So when he told me he was retiring, I, I thought, well, there goes a few more gray hairs. But funny, the first name that popped in my head was Barbara Gregory. You know, most people think, well, she just retired. Why would you contact her? I just had this crazy thought. Well, oftentimes when people retire, after they're retired a year or so, you know, they think, well, maybe I'd like to do something again. Yeah. So I emailed Barb and asked her if, you know, if she would have any interest. And to my delight, she did. And so Barbara Gregory will be our new editor beginning in our summer issue this year after the convention. I think that would be the July, August, September issue. So I think one thing that appealed to her, too, was that it was a quarterly rather than the ongoing demands of a monthly magazine. Yeah. And uh, a much smaller scope and outreach. So as sad we are to see Jerry go we are as excited to see Barbara come in. Yeah, so. that is that is big news. And of course, you had uh, Larry Shepard is director of conventions or whatever. He's he's running the show, and and we actually uh, interviewed Larry for a podcast. Uh, as a side note, we interviewed Jerry when he was editor. I mean, he's still editor for a little bit longer, but you know what I mean. And right. So so now you you join the ranks of uh, the um, uh, central states affiliated folks who've been on the podcast. So good stuff. I love the optimism. We're we're looking forward to the show. Hopefully um, nothing changes in that regard. And uh, well, and Jeff, you mentioned about Larry and optimism. I am just so thrilled. You know, because I'm not a dealer. Uh, you know, I'm just a hobbyist, a collector, or worked his way up through the grassroots. You know, starting out at as at Omaha Coin Club and moving on up and and I have just marveled at the connections and the friends and the people Larry knows which has been so valuable to us and here we are coming out of this pandemic and just made a new partnership with PCGS as our official grading service I mean that's big for us to have a, a company like PCGS choose us to partner with. So again, I, I'm just overflowing with optimism. But as I tell everyone when we have a board meeting, you know, it's one thing to make promises, it's another thing to deliver. So let's get let's get with it. <laughs> All right. All right. And and with that, we're gonna let you get to it. Uh, All right. And, and uh, we're gonna get with the rest of the episode here. But I do thank you again for taking some time to talk to us about this. I think some of the, the metals and pieces that you've gathered are uh, so beautiful. It's a, a neat theme and your experience provides some, some good insight to somebody pursuing a niche area 
and and the challenges that are uh, that await them. Thank you, Jeff. It's it's been my pleasure. That was Jeff's interview with Mitch Ernst. We hope that you enjoyed that and that you enjoyed the entire episode. If you have been enjoying these episodes, if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, please keep on listening and remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. We'd also like to thank Cornworld Plus for being a sponsor of this episode. Indeed it is. We're glad that you're along here for the listening. And uh, please make sure you let us know uh, what you'd like to hear. Uh, give us some suggestions, some ideas, feedback. Uh, that's always welcome, too, and uh, we're glad you came along for this one. We look forward to more exciting episodes coming up. We're reaching up for that milestone coming here very quickly. Uh, episode 156 is just down the pike here. So, but that's going to wrap it up here for now. We hope you had a great time, and again, we welcome you to make your comments and look forward to you listening to our future episodes as well. And in the meantime, Chris, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.